0: That's heritageradio.network.org/fifteen to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March thirty first. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Talk, the only unified platform for reservations, takeout, and event management. Switch to Talk today to increase your revenue and reach nineteen million loyal and engaged guests around the country. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It is Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. This is our 295th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a prolific writer who has a new cookbook out, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we'll have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be prolific. Yes, be fruitful and highly productive, producing an abundance of content. Being prolific can be helpful in becoming better in your line of work, whatever that may be. So let's work hard and be bountiful, as content is king. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really excited to have my guest joining me. It is Joshua David Stein. He is a Brooklyn-based prolific, prolific writer and the author of many books, cookbooks, and children's books, including his latest and first solo cookbook, Cooking for Your Kids, At Home with the World's Greatest Chefs. Joshua is the co-author of Notes from a Young Black Chef with Kwame Anwuachi. The Namwa Tea Parlor Cookbook with Wilson Tang. Plus, he's written Can I Eat That? What's Cooking? The Invisible Alphabet, and so many more. Formerly the editor at large at the parenting site Fatherly, Joshua is also the author of To Me, He Was Just Dad. So without further ado, hi Joshua, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
2: <laughs> Can't complain.
1: Can't complain. I, I, I mean, I. You've written so many books and you've written so much. I'm, I, I'm gonna. I wish we okay, had. Okay, I a guess I can complain.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, say it again.
2: I said, I guess I can complain, but I'm not. <laughs> going
1: to. Well, it's impressive. It's really impressive. But why don't you take us back a little bit to how you got started writing? Is that something you you always wanted to do when you were growing
2: up? Um, I went to NYU. And I studied ethnomusicology, which is not a very um, applicable major. And part of that, however, was taking a writing class, which I really resonated with the teaching, I guess, the classes. And then when I got out into the real world, I was uh, a dancer at the time doing ballet and modern. Um, And I realized that that probably wasn't going to um support the lifestyle that I would like to lead. Not that not that uh writing does either. Um but I got to write about music. I got to write about I could write about anything I wanted. So it was kind of inexhaustible. And um Yeah, and at a certain point I guess uh thinking back to it, it was like either I tried to become a full time professional dancer or I had gotten the opportunity and was a recipient of enough privilege that I could do an unpaid internship at Harper's Magazine. And I decided to go the Harper's route. And then that kind of propelled me into a career as a writer.
1: Wow, amazing. I, I, I had known you dance, but I didn't realize it was, it, was, it was like almost like your career, or it was your career at the, initially
2: yeah well, I think as for many dancers, um, <laughs> it's not a financially viable career, but it was what I wanted to do for my life.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's that's very cool. And so how did you then start writing about food and chefs versus, I'd say, you know doing a beat on dancing or more the arts?
2: Um, well, the, the technical or like factual explanation is I started writing about travel for a Gawker blog, which no longer exists, it's called Grid Skipper, and then I got moved over to Gawker, this was in the mid-aughts, I guess, and um, my title was After Hours Editor, which everyone thought that meant I was a night editor, but what it actually meant was I covered things that were after hours, like restaurants, and like nightlife. So that kind of propelled me into more of a gossipy world of restaurants as opposed to food and cookbooks. And to be honest, it took me a long time to make the transition from writing about restaurants to writing about food. I still do both. Like I was a restaurant critic for the New York Observer, which I ended up resigning from, and then the Village Voice, which has since folded. And now I am the restaurant critic for Avenue Magazine. Um, so I still do a fair amount of restaurant criticism, but, uh, there are no books that are collections of restaurant criticism. So if I wanted to move into a more sustainable sort of career path, uh, cookbooks would be the way to, to go.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking yet there aren't books on that, huh?
2: (laughs) you know tr- believe me i've i've tried to pitch them the the issue is you know for so many restaurants that you write about um 2 years after you write about them they're closed so unless you can um yeah justify a compendium based solely on the quality of writing you know which is hard um it's it's not really viable
1: yeah well i mean i remember when you were at Grid Skipper. And I I remember and reading you with the New York Observer and along along your career path, because I feel we've we've both been 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 in this game for about the same amount of time, I guess. Yeah. Um but so what was your first book then? Um when did and when did that come out?
2: Um well my first book was when I was at Grid Skipper. It was well, I guess it was the first book. I rewrote or I updated a travel guide for a British publisher named Thameson Hudson. who's was a great publisher called Style City. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of semi did books like uh, I did two books for the luxury collection that um, that were put out by Asseline. Um, those were kind of like vanity projects for Asseline. I mean, for a luxury collection. and But my first real book, I would say, was Food and Beer, which is a cookbook that I did with Jeppe Bergso from Evil Twin, who at the time was working with a chef named Daniel Burns at a place called Luxus. Well, it's called Torst, uh-huh. the name. Yeah. But there was a restaurant in the back which had a Michelin star, and it was the first... Uh, Michelin star for a beer-only tasting menu restaurant. Um, So that was with Fiden. And uh, that book came out simultaneously, actually, to a children's book that came out called um, Can I Eat That? So those two books came out, I think, the same year. And then since then, I think I've published children's books and cookbooks simultaneously, I think, every year. But I would have to go back and check.
1: Wow. I mean, that's amazing. And I mean, in some books you've done on your own and some you've had co authors with, I mean, what's we prefer one over the other or do you just like kind of mixing it up?
2: Um, I think for myself, one of the things I consider when I'm doing a project is if it will be of service and how it can be of service. And I think at this stage in my life, um, I can be more helpful in lending my writing um, skills, I guess, and bookmaking skills, which is at some point creative and then at some point just project management. Um, I can be more of service Doing that for someone else, or with in collaboration with someone else, yeah. Even this book that came out now, "Cooking for Your Kids," um, yeah, it's my name on the cover, but it's like sixty of the world's greatest chefs, and each one or some, there's there's a score of couples. Um, they provided two recipes. What I did was I I curated the list. I wrote the head notes. I adapted the recipes for the home chef. I did the sidebars. Like I turned their expertise into this project, but it didn't stem from me. And I feel comfortable and happiest, I think, um, being a doula for other people's knowledge, other people's stories, um, than the the, the generator.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's talk more a little bit more about this book because I have it here. And I mean, your the list of chefs that you have involved is is quite amazing. And I love that you have so many couples. Um, it's really cool. And I was I mean, from from going through or, you know, kind of skimming through the different recipes, it's quite a range of recipes.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's quite a range of, you know, chefs uh-huh. from around the world um and that was extremely important to me that it not be so united states centric um that it not be um white male centric um right. and i wanted to really showcase the, showcase um the diversity of dishes and but then really also like the diversity of of wildly talented chefs from around the world. So, you know, doing this book, part of the work was once the recipes were in, but a big part of it was the curate, like the thing I'm most proud of other than the illustrations, which I'm also proud of, which right, I did. You did them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that I do feel like to the extent that the be- the best I could do and I could always do better but to the extent that I could, I tried to, to make it a truly global and diverse uh, selection of chefs.
1: Yes, and, and you did. did you so did you test the recipes um, for all the chefs?
2: Yeah, I cook. I mean, you'll see in the in the book that, well, you won't know, but um, some of those shots I took of the dishes I made because the chef couldn't, for one reason or the other provide a um uh a photograph but yeah I I mean I tested them I tested them more because I wanted to feed my kids than I did for accuracy Mm -hmm. but in doing so I I, of course um yeah uh, did your kids
1: have any favorites or any dishes that they were absolutely no way am I eating this (laughs)
2: Well, if I'm honest.
1: <laughs> well, I saw, I mean, because I'm looking, there's like cab's liver from yeah. like Daniel Rose and Maria Rose. Like there's some dishes that aren't necessarily dishes I think people would say are at least, gener- you know, more like kids dishes as traditionally maybe in America.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there are some. Like I also did not make um, Jacques uh, um kangaroo tails. Okay. Although you can make it with oxtail. Hard to
1: make um, kangaroo, maybe.
2: Yeah, but um, if I'm a 1,000% honest, and I've talked about it, so it's not like I'm um, breaking any news here, sadly.
1: Well, but you like, could be.
2: I could be. My kids don't eat anything I make, like, at all. My younger son, Augie, eats um, chicken nuggets I made him a chicken nugget sandwich with a side of chicken nuggets, which I'm kind of proud of. Um, And my older son doesn't eat anything whatsoever. Um, And it's been a bummer. It's been something I struggle with. I think what I realize is it has so little to do with the food and so much more to do with my interpersonal relationship with them. Um, but it's also important, I think, for me to talk about that in the context of the book, because so often these parenting resources are given. They're also given from a point of view that the person sharing this knowledge has figured it out. And I I haven't. And yet, I still think um, I do have something to offer. And you know, like I, it's not just me, but it's the chefs have something to offer. And a lot of them haven't figured it out either. So, you know, having worked in the parenting space for so long, um, I find that sometimes advice, which is meant to be helpful, can be alienating because you want to see the vulnerability of the person giving the advice as well. Like they have, they're not at the end stage where everything's working out for them. I'm certainly not at the end stage of this. and we'll see you know
1: yeah well i don't i don't have kids but i've i've worked with many chefs and and just people in the industry with kids and i feel it's it's pretty common or at least i've heard a lot that you know their kids don't necessarily want to eat their cooking or they're very picky eaters so i think it just it just is what it is
2: <laughs> yeah i mean i think the thing for a lot of chefs that i've spoken to about it is um like I was talking to Sean Brock about this the other day was in the book um, if for his son's Leo for his first solids, he boiled and pureed and seasoned these like six uh, heirloom squashes. And he had a speech about where they came from and all of this stuff. He was so excited to uh, give that to Leo. And Leo took one bite and just gagged and just <laughs> wouldn't, eat the, wouldn't eat it. And I think um, the, the challenge, not just for food, but for so many things, and especially for chefs, is not to be so attached to your child's response. They have their own stuff going on. It's not a, um, you know, when you get defensive or you get um, offended or hurt, I mean, you can get hurt. That's natural, But not to take it so personally. And I think for a lot of chefs, they spend their day, they spend their nights and most of their days making food. They're so invested in it, that people think it's delicious. So to come home and have the person closest to you um, not want to eat it can be tough for sure. And the chefs in the book that I found that I resonate with the most are the ones who have said, look, my kid is just going to have turkey sandwiches. That's what they want. That's what I'll make them or like just pasta with butter, like the most, you know, it's not like this. It's not like the book is filled with those recipes, um, but in the, in the head notes and in the sidebars, a lot of them talk about their failure. I, I don't even want to say failures, their challenges as a parent too. And, and to me, I want people to pick up the book and I want them to get a hundred recipes that they wouldn't have had before, but also to understand that everyone's struggling. They're not alone in it.
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a great book. It's beautiful. I love the illustrations. I love the. I mean, the way it's organized. It's very easy to, you know, find which, you know, to that you, you you um, showcase um, where to get the chef's other recipes that are in the book because yeah. they have more than one and and that you are. I think I saw in the notes it said you have thirty countries covered here. So that's. I mean, that's impressive um for such a range how how long did it take you to to put this together
2: <laughs> oh years years um i think maybe a year
1: yeah um a lot i mean i was, was working
2: time. on a lot of other projects too and it wasn't like it was all year doing this full time you know um right. yeah but really you know the lion's share the book had like I guess the genesis of the book had distinct phases one of them was the cure one of them was conceptual, one of them was curating the list of chefs um, one of them was after reaching out one of them was like chasing after chefs every day, and then you know a lot of a lot of these chefs once we've decided who they were um not everyone not every chef is interested or has a bandwidth or whatever, um, to respond to emails in a timely manner and they don't make books. So there's a lot of not creative, just logistical wrangling. And then all of those interviews, which were my favorite part. I love talk. That's my favorite thing about writing is listening. Um, and then, and then there was a whole part after that of getting all the text in and well, you know, like format you know just the mm-hmm. making of the actual book, but all in I think a year,
1: yeah, well, well, you did it, and it's 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 great, I'm very happy with have my copy, so and it's a fight in book, which they always do beautiful books, So, um yeah, it's awesome, and so let's talk a little bit about a uh, fatherly because that I I was I started I was listening to a couple of your podcasts that um are tied to fatherly and it's um I was really enjoying it. I listen I just listened to the one with Massimo Patora and, yeah. and John Legend. I mean, you had some some big names um that you're talking to. So Yeah.
2: Unfortunately, um I haven't done that podcast in a while. Um I'm not with Fatherly anymore, although I guess I'm nominally a contributing editor, but that means nothing. Um, but I love what you do. I love podcasts. I love talking. You know, like the whole listening and talking, in, in this format is really. Um, I hope it's as much of a blast to listen to as it is to produce. Um,
1: well, from the shows I listened to of yours, I would I I was very into it and we'll probably be going back to the archives and listening to more, which also is something I love about podcasts is that they're just available.
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 That was a good, uh, you know, I like, I've met Massimo a bunch of times and I feel like um, he's a very, he's a very genuine person. You know, he's, yes, he's, indeed. he is, sort of like a dreamer but and an artist and really committed to being a dreamer and an artist. Like he has no self-consciousness about being creative and he has no self-consciousness about being um, whimsical is like a little bit dismissive. That's not what I mean. It's more like fantastical and he has no fear creatively that I've seen. Um, And that's really rare. And I think that comes from a lot of success. Um, like he's made it. I think he's had a lot of help from Lara and his wife making mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, like she is the he's allowed and able to dream in that way because he has a counterpart who's very um, grounded. But to talk to him is exhilarating. To talk to him is like talking to an an artist. He happens to be a chef, but. It might as well be Francis Ford Coppola on film, or you know um, Matisse, or the medium do- at, at that level. The medium doesn't matter; it's like the yeah. spirit.
1: No, he's he's amazing, and I I feel very lucky. I had the opportunity to to dine at his restaurant, Osteria Francescana, and then he came on. He was been on my podcast. He was in New York a co- couple years ago, and I was able to do an interview with him. And it's just. He's yeah.
2: He's was that the bread is gold tour?
1: Um, it was it no. It was more tied to um, he was he was involved. It was at Italy. There was um, uh, Golosum. I'm blanking on the name of the organization oh, that organized Identita
2: Goloso. Yeah, Identita exactly.
1: Galoso. They had a series of events at Italy, and that's when I was able to um, connect with him. Oh, nice. So, and, but it was, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. It was, it was great about your, your interview with him was, you know, hearing him talk about his kids and, and that you brought his daughter onto the show. And, yeah. um, and he's just so real, you know? Yeah.
2: I feel like, um, it's hard for people to keep all of their defenses and facades up when you're talking, when you're relating to them as parents. Now, It doesn't mean you can relate to everyone as a parent because some people's realities are so different than yours that um, when they talk about being a parent, I hardly recognize the experience. But for a lot of people, you know, we all have those feelings of love for our kids, and that's genuine. So I found doing that podcast that if I could connect with my guests on that level, um, it didn't matter how famous they were, they would... They, you kind of got, you kind of cut through all of the media training,
1: right? Yeah, because they're just they're it's yeah they're just they're it's so personal what you're talking about that just naturally you you get like the real real deal. Um, yeah. Not not to say I didn't get the real deal, but the subject matter of our our talk was a little different.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: So um, let me ask you my question from my last guest on episode 294 I had on Judy Ann Wu. She's an independent marketing and culinary consultant. She's the host of a a new podcast called Food People Are the Best People, which is on the Eat Drink Dine Podcast Network. And she wants to know, do you have any words of wisdom as a father to a father? What's the best advice you could give to raising children who are self-sufficient, thoughtful, caring human beings that we want to see in this world? and she also noted how she's she takes parenting very seriously and she loves being a parent.
2: Um can I curse on the show? Yes, you may. <laughs> uh deal with your own shit. You know, like Great advice. <laughs> so much of the so much of what we how we treat our kids that are that's problematic has to do with the fact that we haven't processed a lot of our own issues and everyone has issues and great that's what makes us part of what makes us human um but if you're blind to them then that's what you're passing on to your kids and that could be really harmful
1: well yeah that's that's yeah great advice as i said perfect
2: um and you don't have to have kids to deal with your own shit either
1: Very true. Yes, we all should deal with our own shit, for sure. So what else? um, What's next for you? What's in the pipeline? Like, Uh, more books this year?
2: Yeah, a bunch of books. Um, Let's see. I have a children's book coming out in November called Solitary Animals. Um, And then I have... uh, a book with Joe Campanale, another uh, heritage radio host. Yes. Called Vino, uh, which is coming out in twenty twenty two. Kwame Onwachi and I wrote another cook another book. It's a cookbook that's also coming out in twenty twenty two. Um
1: Amazing.
2: Then I have another children's book called Lunch from Home, which I think is coming out in twenty twenty two. So my schedule is usually every other year is like slightly heavier. So this year was um, is what's is this book called Cooking for Your Kids, and oh, I think Invisible Alphabet was this year too. Um,
1: <laughs> I was going to ask you how many books you've done. Do you know?
2: Oh, so many. Seven, <laughs> ten, ten maybe eight. Oh, it's yeah, like I think it's more. You think so?
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um Yeah, god. Well, you know, books are uh I've not reached the level in my career where I can do like, you know, sometimes you talk to people and they're like, um uh they're like, yeah, I've been working on this book or even like an article for 9 months. And I'm like, what are you talking, like, how can you, if someone's working on an article for nine months, it's like, how are you making a living? Or it's like, I can't just do one book per year. I'm not there yet. So I really do out of necessity, and to be honest, out of um, out of choice, I like to have a bunch of different projects, because there's something about, like, cross-pollination, which I really enjoy. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm I like to be busy and do you know, wear multiple hats too. Um, you certainly do, and you certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, because also, I just I have it on a tab to to finish reading. But I saw, I think today or yesterday, you came out with an article on Grub Street on Anthony Bourdain's new documentary Roadrunner. Yeah. So you're also, I mean, between the books, you're you're still you're you're writing on publications, you know.
2: Yeah. It's different. They're different muscles. It's like, one's almost like a fast Twitch. You do it, you're really involved in for like two weeks or like that was like, like I, I saw the film, I think on a, on a Thursday. Yeah. It was on Thursday and then I filed that on Sunday. So it was like quite a quick turnaround. What I find about books is that they're, they're logistically so much more challenging. Um, it's not that they're more work. I mean, they are more work. It's not that they're more work per word there, but it's more of a project to manage with a lot of moving parts and a lot more people. Because when you're putting together a book, I'm very involved in all my collaborations. And of course in my own work, it's like every step of the way, it's such a big team. It's like, okay, well the cover, the illustration or illustrations, photographer design, not to mention like copy edit, not to mention edit, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Not to mention like conceptualizing the book itself, so there's a lot of different tasks, which is something I love about it because the it there are so many skills involved and so many ways of using your brain,
1: yeah, yeah, and you're i mean you're you're obviously very good at it and wearing these different hats and and i've always I've always thought of writing or, you know especially freelance writing at that like you really gotta to hustle to make it as a career. And I have so much respect for people who do it because I write, it's like, I, I've written a couple articles here and there and it just, it takes me, you know, a bit of time to write uh, just to get it the way I want it. But is a, you know, as a as a full-time job, what you're doing, you really, you gotta get articles out there and you're able to do it
2: and do it. Yeah, well. I mean, it's not a great living. <laughs> to be honest, um, but augmented with books, uh, it is for now tenable. Yeah, well,
1: I say keep up everything you're doing. It's 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 wonderful. So um, let's take a little break here, and we'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. I have a new solo dining experience this week, and the final question. So stay with us. This is on the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm excited to partner with TALK, the only unified platform for reservations, takeout, and event management. TALK is home to 7,000 restaurants, bars, wineries, and breweries, including Danielle Ballew Kitchen a new pickup and delivery concept designed to bring the culinary legacy of Chef Danielle Ballou to your home. So I'm a big fan of Danielle Ballou. If you recall, back on episode 293, I shared my solo dining experience at Le Pavillon by Danielle Ballou, which is a new restaurant in New York City. No matter which of his French restaurants you go to or I go to, Danielle never disappoints. And now you can experience Danielle Ballou at home. And thanks to Talk, ordering is a breeze. Check out the rotating menu of contemporary French classics rooted in the rhythm of the seasons. To learn more about how Talk powers reservations, events, and takeouts, go to ExploreTalk. That's explore, dot com slash join. That's explore, talk, dot com slash join. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bear. My guest today is Joshua David Stein. He's the author of many cookbooks, books, and children's books, and his latest is Cooking for Your Kids at Home with the World's Greatest Chefs. So, Joshua, it's time for my speed round game. What this is is I'm going to name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Sure. Are you ready? Yes. All right, here we go. Eat in or
2: eat out? Oh. Wait a um, second. What do you mean, eat in or eat out? Eat in in my house or eat out at a restaurant or eat in in a restaurant or take out in a restaurant?
1: I'm, I think it's so funny because since since the pandemic, yeah. everyone's getting stuck on this one. And before the pandemic, no, it, it was like, it, no, everyone understood it. It's um, <laughs> but I'm I'm referring to eat in like eating in your home or no. eating out at a restaurant. Yes. Out
2: out okay
1: but again but this game i have to say can be interpreted however you want to interpret it so i just
2: want to make sure i'm responding to the correct (laughs) option
1: for each their own and yes you did okay how about um wine beer cocktail mocktail or champagne cocktail tasting menu or a la carte
2: a la carte
1: small plates or large plates large communal table or chef's counter? Ugh.
2: Ugh. Neither. Uh. Yeah. My own table. Can I okay. say that? Yes,
1: yeah. you could. Yes, there's no wrong. I don't want to make
2: small talk. I don't want to make small talk with like a stranger. <laughs> I don't want to make small talk with a chef who doesn't really want to talk to me anyway because she's working. Um, so Your on own. my own at a table, maybe a book.
1: <laughs> wonderful okay tipping or all-inclusive charge
2: all-inclusive
1: how about memoirs cookbooks or children's books my tough one of the game
2: children's books
1: Ooh, fun Writing words, drawing illustrations, or podcasting.
2: Words—that's I'm best at that.
1: Okay, two more: cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn?
2: Brooklyn. Brooklyn. How dare you? You've been
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, I—I—I um, I, I believe you live in Brooklyn, so I was yes. not that surprised by that one. <laughs> yeah. So um for industry news and that and that was wonderful. You played a really, really good game there, mm. even though I confused you on the first one. A
2: trick question, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, so for industry news, uh, I picked out an article on Eater New York. Uh, I know this is a little New York centric here, but we we live we live in this hood. So um the article is called or entitled The debate over the future of outdoor dining is off to a complicated start. Residents of lower Manhattan debate the future of outdoor dining. And this was by Luke Fortnoy. And um, yeah, so this has been in the news quite a bit here, just talking about um, what's gonna happen with outdoor dining that since the pandemic, uh, the open restaurants program um, supporting really really was a lifeline to restaurants. it was like 11,000 restaurants and bars over the last year extended their their seating to sidewalks and and in parking spaces, and it it really helped them survive. And so now that we're we're kind of uh, past the extremeness of the pandemic, of uh, people are kind of wondering what the future is, and there's debates about um, the range of from safety and noise to pedestrian access and parking um, with with having this the outdoor dining. So. Um, you, do you have any take on this?
2: Um, I think there there's some there's something mentioned in that article that with some marginal changes to outdoor dining, the majority of pedestrians support. Uh, this was in reference to the Chinatown support the mm-hmm. um, continuation of that program, and I agree with that. I think that it. You're optimizing for cars, not good if you're optimizing for the local community and the pedestrians, then I think that that is also important, especially you you want people to feel like they're at home in their homes that it's not taken over by luxury services in a way you know that aren't for them in many cases so um Outdoor dining forever with community uh, input.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think I, I'm all I'm always all for pro restaurants and 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 I think I think these you know the, a lot of these outdoor dining setups have, you know it's changed the the look of the city, but it's been it's it's pretty cool. And I think yeah, concerns there are some concerns with safety or noise or just that there are some of these setups it's like um, it, it could be a little I don't know a little dangerous uh, with being so close to cars going by in the street but um, yeah. uh, I agree I think it, w- it would be nice to see this this program um, continuing on and supporting restaurants and uh, there's just yeah there's just people need to to, to figure out I guess the, the further logistics of it moving forward. Because it all happened, so, I mean, it it was a reaction, really, yes. to, to what was happening, and it happened very fast. Yes, correct. So, um, we'll stay tuned on that, and I know this was a New York City-type situation, but I believe this type of stuff is kind of happening everywhere, which is kind of figuring out how to move forward, since things changed this past year.
2: Yes, not a return to the status quo, but also with community input, like a reasonable yes. middle path.
1: Yes. Yes, I'm on the same page with that, so that's great. And I have my solo dining experience this week, so it is at Dame. Here's the rundown. The location, 87 McDougall Street, Soho, New York City. The concept, an English seafood-focused restaurant that began as a pop-up during the pandemic, and it turned now into a permanent location. The owners are Chef Ed Zizmanski and Patricia Howard, why did I go? Well, I was hearing really wonderful things about this new restaurant. So I wanted to check it out. My experience. Okay, so I went online to get a reservation and the only spots available were at 10 o'clock or 10.30. And I thought that was kind of ridiculous, but I booked it anyway, because that's how I that's how I roll. Um, but I called the restaurant because it was a, a reservation for two and I was gonna go solo to see if they could change that. And then while I was on the phone, I said, do you happen to have anything earlier? And they did. So I changed it to 7pm. So there's a little tip for for anyone if you see late reservations or times you don't you don't um, that don't service you as well you call the restaurant because I sometimes forget to pick up the phone because I'm so used to apps and everything online. Um, So you may be too. Okay, so I showed up, I got a a table um, that was near the front corner of the restaurant. Um, They were actually utilizing the outdoor space more than the indoor space. And they had the the windows open. And it was a really nice spot. The service was great. Uh, One of I recognized from her photo, Patricia, uh, one of the the owners, and she she helps take care of me as as well as a a server at the restaurant, and I had a really good time. Uh, What did I get? Well, I, I don't know. Whatever mood I was in, I just overordered. <laughs> I got um one grilled oyster with uh green chartreuse hollandaise. I got a couple small plates, there are smoked whitefish croquettes, I got heirloom cucumbers with mussels and dill, and also a warm lobster tart with morels and snap peas And while I was overordering, I also got dessert. I got Eton Mess and uh They're known actually for their fish and chips and I didn't get the fish and chips. So that's on my list for next time. But I did, I did do quite well in ordering. Um, What did I get? It was all great. And it's, you know, I don't really love cucumbers, which is interesting. I ordered that dish, but funnily enough, I love these cucumbers, you know, nice preparations of, 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 of food products that don't necessarily um, always resonate with me. You know, I, it's like, I, pleasantly surprised myself when I, when I like things more than I think I'm going to like them. Um, the croquettes were super delicious, the lobster tart with morels. I mean, how can that not be fabulous? It was rich. It was decadent and the dessert was, was sweet and messy. And I really liked my whole meal. So the ambiance, it has uh, wooden booths and it has a marble chef's counter facing the open kitchen. They weren't using it that night. I think they're just not using the indoor space to full capacity yet because most of the seating was on the patio. Uh, perfect for dinner with friends or date night. Interesting tidbit, chef Ed and Patricia apparently met while they were working at the Beatrice Inn. He is formerly the chef at Cherry Point in Green Point, which I think is now closed. And she does the wine list. and. I didn't, I didn't have any wine, but the wine list is pretty fun. On one side of the menu, it has what James Bond would like to drink. And on the other side, it has Austin Powers um, selections. So I thought that was kind of fun. Personal fun fact, uh, while I was leaving, I ran into a food writer friend who was sitting outside and dining. And I have to say, it just feels extra special in the city when you run into people you know, because base, pretty much all of last year, I was I didn't see many people I knew. So that was fun. Uh, The cost of this meal was $82, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I do want to try the fish and chips. And their website is damenewyork.com and on Instagram dame underscore NYC. My next guest is Manish Goal. He is the founder and CEO at Pineapple Company and the founder and partner at Sona, which is featuring timeless Indian cuisine in the heart of Manhattan. I talked about Sonam um, episode 288 as a solo experience. So Joshua, can you please ask a question for Manish? I
2: have two. One, do you have any reservations this Friday at 7.30 for two? Very popular, it's hard to get a table. Um, but two, um, what are some of the challenges of presenting high-end modern Indian cuisine in the city as a, as a fine dining experience essentially? And does he feel like um, those challenges are diminishing a little bit or getting easier? And if so, to what does he attribute that?
1: Fabulous. I will ask him, you're amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, My guest today has been Joshua David Stein. He's the author of many cookbooks, books and children's books. His latest is Cooking for Your Kids at Home with the World's Greatest Chefs by Feiden. Um, His website's joshuadavidstein.com. You can follow him at Joshua David Stein. And you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. Websites, BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllintheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNow.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks always to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to Joshua and to Alex and Jill. And thanks to our sponsor, Talk. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Stay safe and well. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.